Hello and welcome to another episode of Reorg Expert Views. Today we will be taking a look at the recently handed down Adler judgment from the English Court of Appeal overturning the German real estate company's restructuring plan. My name is Sean Kureshi and I am a legal director at Reorg. I'm very fortunate to be joined by two industry experts, Mandy England, a partner at law firm Free Frank, and Joe Hewitt, a managing director at Alvarez and Marcel. Welcome both. Very pleased to have you in the Reorg Expert View uh, podcast and looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the Adler judgment. So to kick us off, Joe, perhaps you could talk us through the background of the Adler restructuring and uh, the overall deal which was implemented. Sure. So as you mentioned, Sean, Adler is a German real estate group. It purchases, manages and develops multifamily residential assets. Um, so prior to the restructuring plan, the group had just over six billion um, euros of debt. Included within that debt was six series of notes, totaling just over three billion euros. Each series of notes had different maturity dates. The first one repayable in July 2024 and the final series payable in 2029. Now, importantly, none of those notes had any security. And if there was an insolvency of the group, all the notes would rank equally as unsecured creditors. So they would rank pari pursue. Now, you'll, you'll be aware that at the first hit the headlines back in 2000, uh, sorry, 2021, um, when there was a publication alleging that the group had artificially inflated its, the value of its assets, amongst other things, it then ran into some liquidity issues and issues around its audits. Um, and that was all compounded by a sharp decline in the German real estate market, which they say had a significant adverse impact on their business. So it tried to sell some assets to improve liquidity. It, it, that wasn't enough. It then started restructuring negotiations late in um, 2022, which culminated in them launching the restructuring plan. So what was the purpose of that restructuring plan? Um, importantly here, it wasn't to achieve the long-term survival of the group. It was to achieve a controlled wind down of the group. And they say better realizations of the real estate assets than would have been achieved through a formal insolvency in Germany. That RP also allowed some new money to come into the group to pay down some debt that was further in the structure, further down in the structure. It capitalized some of the interest on the notes for a couple of years and it made changes to interest rates and the like. But perhaps, perhaps two of the most important elements of the restructuring plan in respect of the appeal is that it extended the maturity of the 2024 notes by one year. But importantly, the maturity dates for all the other series of notes were left untouched by the restructuring plan. And it also granted security to the new money that had come in and it altered the repayment waterfall in an insolvency such that the new money notes was sorry the new money would be repaid first at the top of the waterfall followed by the 2024 notes and then the remaining series of notes would rank equally amongst themselves under the plan so that's a summary in a, in a nutshell thanks joe i think that sets the scene very well now before we delve into the detail of the recent court of appeal judgment mandy Perhaps you could tell us a bit more about the English law restructuring plan. What are the key features of the tool? Sure. Thanks, Sean. Um, so the restructuring plan is probably familiar to many, if not all of you. But, but for those that are sort of relatively new um, to the system, um, to recap, it's a compromise or arrangement between a company and its creditors or members or a class of them, which is modelled on the scheme of arrangement under Part 26 of the Act, which we've had for an extremely long time. However, it is different in some important respects. Firstly, 
to use the restructuring plan, a company has to satisfy threshold conditions, which means that use of the restructuring plan is limited to companies that have encountered or are likely to encounter financial difficulties that affect their ability to carry on business as a going concern. Um, although the company doesn't have the RP, sorry, doesn't have to rescue the company as a going concern. And, and that was established quite early on in the first case of Depotion, which actually facilitated a winding down. Um, and obviously, with a scheme of arrangement, you don't have to be experiencing financial difficulties to use it. Um, secondly, under a scheme of arrangement, all members and creditors whose rights are being affected by the scheme have to be summoned to a meeting. But under a restructuring plan, the court's got the power to exclude any class from voting if the court's satisfied that none of the members of that class have a genuine economic interest in the relevant alternative. Um, thirdly, under Part 26 schemes, a class vote is carried upon a vote of 75% in value in that class and the majority in number. But the restructuring plan doesn't have the majority in number test. But most importantly, a scheme can only be sanctioned if the relevant majority in each class has voted in favour of it. But under a restructuring plan, a court can sanction a plan even where a class has not voted in favour of it, provided that that class is no worse off than the relevant alternative which is what the court thinks would be most likely to occur if the plan were not sanctioned. And it's been approved by a class that would receive a payment or has a genuine economic interest in the relevant alternative, basically an in-the-money creditor. So that's the cross-class cram-down. Now, the sanction of a scheme or a restructuring plan is still always subject to the court's discretion and how that discretion ought to be exercised when there is a cross-class cram-down was really the crux of the matter in Adler. Thanks, Mandeep. It's a very powerful tool indeed. And at real, we've seen over 10 large capital structure restructuring plans implemented in just the last 18 months. So now that we've got this background in place, Joe, perhaps you could talk us through the first instant decision from the English High Court judge, which sanctioned Adler's restructuring plan uh, in April last year. Sure. So obviously, given it was sanctioned, the judge was satisfied that the conditions for the cross-class cram-down that Mandit mentioned were, were met. Now, the Adler restructuring plan had each of the um, series of notes in separate classes, and each of those classes, with the exception of the 2029 notes, <coughs> voted in favour of the restructuring plan, meaning that the, the group had to ask the court to invoke the cross-class cram-down. So the judge had to be satisfied that the no creditor worse off test was met, and um, if that test was met, he then had to apply his discretion on whether or not to sanction the plan. And, and we often refer to that um, kind of as looking at the overall general fairness. Now, the, the, the dissenting 2029 creditors challenged the plan at sanction, and they were arguing that they were actually worse off under the restructuring plan versus the relevant alternative, which here the group was saying was an, an immediate insolvency um, in Germany with a distribution of the assets on a pari pursue basis, because remember that um, they, they were currently all kind of unsecured and ranking equally amongst each other. So a valuation battle then ensued at the sanction hearing. The company presented its expert evidence indicating that the 2029 notes would be repaid in full, in due course, under their restructuring plan wind down, but that in the relevant alternative, um, which would be in an insolvency now, those um, notes would only receive around a 60% recovery. So the, the evidence indicated 
Those 29 notes repaid in full under the plan, only 60% in the relevant alternative. But the 2029 notes, the dissenting creditors presented their own expert evidence based on real estate valuations, which suggested actually they would only receive a 10% recovery under the restructuring plan versus the company's 100% recovery forecast. And that 10% was clearly much worse than the 50, I think 6% they they presented or the the 60% recovery the company was presenting under the relevant um, alternative insolvency. Now, the judge at the first instance ultimately indicated that he preferred the valuation evidence of the company. But interestingly, he said that even if the uh, valuation evidence of the dissenting creditors turned out to be more accurate, he noted that he thought that would result in a breach of the group's LTV covenants and that the 2029 note holders would then be able to serve notice, which would predicate an enforcement by the security agent and ultimately result in an orderly wind down under which the pari- um, the proceeds from the insolvency would be distributed on a pari passu basis. So importantly, he felt that under the restructuring plan um, and and the relevant alternative, there was no departure from the pari passu principle and that the no creditor worse off test had been met. And he considered a number of other factors, um, but he exercised his discretion and sanctioned the plan. Thanks, Joe. Um, So as we know, a group of 2029 note holders challenged that Part 26A sanction judgment, and that was heard in the English Court of Appeal late last year. Now, as everyone in the industry knows, the appeal was successful. Judgment handed down last week with key reasoning provided by Lord Justice Snowden. Mandip, perhaps you could talk us through your observations on the Court of Appeal judgment. Sure, thanks. And, and this is obviously very high level because obviously we're, we're, we're pushed for time. Um, and I do recommend that people read the judgment because it's actually you know not very lengthy and very, and very clearly set out. Um, but the key issue, as I as I said, was you know how should the court be exercising its discretion where there is a cross class cram down? Now, I think the view has always been that the scheme of arrangement has obviously established a lot of case law, and the expectation is that with the Part Twenty Six A, you know the courts can draw on that existing scheme law, but that will need to be developed over time, and, and sort of traditionally. You know, the court will be looking when exercising as to whether the statutory requirements have been met, um, whether the class was properly represented at the meetings and voting based on interests of that class, i.e. there's no ulterior or external motive that is against the interests of that class, that the scheme is a fair scheme, you know, one that Mm. an honest and intelligent man or person would think is in their interest, although it doesn't have to decide whether it's the only scheme or the best scheme. And also whether there's any blot on the scheme that would make it unlawful or inoperable. And, and providing those you know, factors are sort of present, the court is sort of typically slow to differ from the results of the meeting if, if those criteria are met. Now, what that means is the court will often take comfort from the level of support for a scheme in a class on the mm. basis that there's a commonality of interest between everybody in the class and they are best placed to decide what's in their interest. But clearly in a restructuring plan where you've got a dissenting class, you know, by definition, Mm. there is no commonality of interest. There is a class that's not voted in favour. And so what the court was saying is, well, the fact that there's, you know, an assenting class that's voted in favour by an overwhelming majority 
doesn't really tell us very much. And the fact that a number of classes might have voted overwhelmingly in favour doesn't tell us very much. So the court has to take a slightly different approach. Now, Joe's referred to obviously the no, the no worse off test and, and the judge being satisfied that the no worse off test was met. But, but that's just a threshold that you have to hit in order for the cross-class cram-down to be permitted. There's a sort of further analysis required by the court to assess whether the scheme, or the scheme, sorry, the plan is actually fair. And the court took the view that what you have to look at is the sort of horizontal comparator, which is a principle that's been developed primarily under sort of CVA law. And that is assessing the relative treatment of a class of creditors with other creditors and determining, you know, is there any differential treatment? And if there is differential treatment, is that differential treatment justified? And in you know, coming to that analysis, the court will have to take a look at their relative position in the relevant alternative for assessing whether that treatment is justifiable. And it was it was that aspect that troubled the court in this case, and um, was one of the reasons why the Court of Appeal decided that actually the court had not exercised its discretion in the right way in the first instance judgment. Thanks, uh, Mandy. Yes, choosing the correct comparators is always crucial when uh, a plan company attempts to use cross-class cram-down. Joe, perhaps you could talk us through how Adler applied its relevant alternative and why, you know, following the Court of Appeal judgment, um, this wasn't successful. Yes, so interestingly here, there wasn't a dispute around what the actual relevant alternative scenario was. Both sides kind of recognised that it would be a kind of wind down liquidation through a German insolvency process. So that, that point wasn't a point of dispute, um, but it was more the this um, departure for, and the differential treatment that Mandips mentions um, between the different classes um, and, and whether or not that was effectively fair. So yep. when the Court of Appeal looked um, at, at, this, at, at this case, they, they were of the view that actually the no creditor worse off test had not been met satisfactorily because the first instance judge had only found that on, it was on the balance of probabilities that if the plan was implemented, the group would only more likely realise the sums set out in their evidence and, 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 and might be able to pay the 2029 um, notes in full. But actually, there was significant risk attached to the group achieving those realisations um, that were forecast under the plan and only a small margin of error in those forecasts would have re resulted in the note holders suffering a shortfall, something which actually the judge of first instance had accepted and noted in his judgment. So there was no certainty that the 2029 notes would be paid in full under the plan or even if there was a default at some point along the way that they would recover on a pari-pursue basis given the differing maturity dates. So the group would go off, start realising assets and stick to the maturity profile of those series of notes, meaning that those notes being paid at the end were at greater risk of further declines in value or perhaps the um, more valuable, easy to sell assets were realised first, leaving them perhaps mm. with a rump that meant that they were more likely potentially to suffer a, um, a shortfall. Um, so... The, the, the dissenting creditors were arguing, actually, 
that they would get a better recovery if the group was to enter insolvency now because they would rank equally and receive payment at the same time as the other note holders. So because um, the plan did not um, follow the pari pursue principle and follow that, that waterfall that would apply in um, an insolvency, that that was, you know, the court then had to decide whether or not it there was a justified departure from mm. the pari pursue principle. And he found that there wasn't sufficient justification for maintaining the maturity profiles and therefore not respecting that pari pursue principle that would um, would have applied in the relevant alternative. In summary, he didn't think there was a fair distribution of the benefits under the restructuring amongst the creditors. And interestingly, the Court of Appeal went on to say that there could, however, have been a fairer plan that eliminated that differential treatment by harmonising the maturity dates so it would have respected that pari pursue kind of principle. What I think is interesting is that, you know, Adler is an unusual plan in some respects because there's no debt written off under the plan and the relevant alternative was that straightforward liquidation. So the horizontal test that Mandit mentioned and that the Court of Appeal referred to um, quite often in, in the judgment was is, was much more straightforward than it might be where a plan, say, where the relevant alternative was um, an accelerated M&A process, or perhaps if different creditor groups had different um, security pools, for example, because that would make the considerations around what is yeah. fair between the classes much more complex. Thanks, Joe. It's very interesting indeed. Um, Mandy, do you have any further takeaways from the Court of Appeal judgment? Because Snowden definitely touched on a few other issues other than the ones we've spoken about. Yeah, so there are sort of points, you know, of principle in relation to restructuring plans that have sort of been debated as these plans have been coming out. Um, and one is in relation to the position of shareholders in a restructuring plan and how should yeah. they be treated. So, you know, one of the arguments that was made by the challenging creditors is that given the shareholders were out of the money in the relevant alternative, they shouldn't retain any equity whatsoever, and that should somehow be taken away from them. Um, and the court's response to that was, you know, there is no absolute priority rule in the UK. So it's not the case that shareholders can't keep their equity in a scenario where there is a restructuring or creditors' claims are impaired. You know, in each case, it will be case-specific. And there have been circumstances we've seen before where you know, the shareholders might be providing new money mm. and a new value where it's, it's you know been found to be reasonable for the equity to remain in play, even where there's been a restructuring. You know, in this case, as, as Joe mentioned, there was no reduction in the claims of the creditors. So the shareholders wouldn't be receiving anything anyway until the creditors got paid in full. So the Court of Appeal didn't, didn't have a concern about that. And the other point that was made is that there's nothing under the law of schemes or restructuring plans, which means that shareholders or creditors can just have their rights taken away. So if you're going to be dealing with you know, shareholders under a plan, you can't just confiscate their equity. Um, and, you know, and, that, and that makes sense. A scheme or a structuring plan is meant to be a compromise or arrangement. So even if a creditor wouldn't receive anything in the relevant alternative, you know, they're going to have to get something under the RP or the scheme to sort mm. of meet that threshold. I suppose the question will be, you know, how do you value that? What is the appropriate amount to give when you know that they would get nothing in the relevant alternative? And that that's something that no doubt will get tested in the future. Yeah, that's right, Mandy. I think we'll we'll see some some arguments around that in the future plans. Um, and that is certainly very valuable guidance to practitioners. 
who will be using the uh, the plan in the future. So grateful for Justice Snowden, Lord Justice Snowden, even for providing that uh, in his judgment. Joe, perhaps you could uh, give us an overview to the extent you can on some of the valuation issues that Adler faced and that plan companies could face in the future. So here, the key challenge was valuing these real estate assets um, out for, you know, across an extended period of time and all of the uncertainty and the difficulties and challenges around doing that, given the macroeconomic environment. And this is something that the judges noted on in, 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 in both judgments, saying that that was really difficult and that they they no one had a crystal ball um but the the challenge here was um for the company it was as i mentioned earlier only such a small change or there was they only had room for a small amount of error before you know the the forecast recoveries under the plan swung from being a full recovery to a kind of uh, a shortfall to their creditors and that's when it gets more difficult where you haven't got you know room for much error in your assumptions when making these valuations before it really moves the dial and, and therefore I think it's going to take some convincing of the judges as to you know here in particular you know how how certain can they be that creditors are no worse off under that relevant alternative than what they're being offered under the plan and, and that's the challenge as I say, they had here and 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 quite often you see it in the restructuring plans where these valuation battles play out. Thanks, Joe. That makes sense. Um, so going back to, to you, Mandip, and as well as you know, some of the guidance we've now got on cross-class cramdown and discretion, Lord Justice Snowden also made a few comments regarding the process around Part 26A, timing and disclosure for the court. Are we starting to see Part 26A looking more and more like a litigation process? Yeah, I mean, possibly. I mean, not for the first time. You know, the courts expressed dissatisfaction with the time pressures that are being put on the court. And, you know, as as, um, has been said before, you know, the gun to the head, as it's been described, where a judge is basically told that if they don't sanction this plan, um, by X date, then the whole company is going to, you know, go insolvent, and lots of people are going to lose their jobs. So they're just going to have to suck it up and, and, and come up with a decision in that time frame. And so that is something that the court, you know, the court of appeal was not very happy with, you know. And it was acknowledged that in some cases there there is real urgency, and there might be a serious liquidity issue that couldn't have been foreseen. But in other situations, you know, that urgency might be driven by impending maturities that have been well known in advance or creditors basically attaching conditions to when, you know, when the plan needs to get done in, in for new money to be available. Um, and I think that's something that the court feel, you know, feel strongly about, understandably. And then they commented that you can't take for granted the court's willingness to decide cases quickly to help mm. a company that's in urgent difficulties. You know, they will take a dim view and might, you know, you might start to see more adjournments to give the court more time. Um, so I think anybody, come, you know, putting forward a plan has to factor factor that in or take the risk that the timetable will get delayed anyway. I think on disclosure, you know, as Joe's alluded to, massive amounts of valuation evidence. And I think there was sort of a, a three-day sanction hearing with seven witnesses cross-examined, which the judge had to digest in the, in the first instance. And, you know, the court has again said this before, which is that parties ought to make relevant material available in a timely manner. 
mm. and use, you know, the court will use its case management powers to make that happen. You know, and that's the sort of principles in, in litigation, right? In standard litigation, there is an emphasis on parties sharing information and not wasting the court's time by going back and forth to try and get the court to help them do it. So you will you'll see probably, or you'd expect to see perhaps a slight change in behaviour following that. Um, and then I think another procedural point just about the role of experts and advisors and, you know, an expectation and a desire from the court to see advisors and experts cooperating to narrow the issues that actually the judge has to decide upon, rather than them just having to sort of interrogate two conflicting expert reports. So I think there's quite a lot of guidance there as to how the court wants these cases to proceed to make its job easier. Um, and, and yes, it, it is sort of heading towards a more litigation-like time frame and procedure. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Mandy. But I do like the gun to the head expression as a representation of perhaps what uh, some of these judges are faced with. And timing is always critical with distressed debtors. There has to be a balance between allowing sufficient time for the court and plan or scheme creditors to evaluate a plan and also the company's liquidity need. So as we reach the end of this expert views, let's look forward. What do we think uh, the effect of this Court of Appeal decision will be on the industry? Joe, I'd love to hear your views. It's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because um, shortly following the um, announcement of the appeal, you had the company come out here and quickly um, say that, you know, the restructuring plan and the restructuring is valid under German law um, to amend the notes. So they are continuing with the plan, um, which has left some of us then scratching our heads as to, you know, um, why, why seek the plan in the first place. But I think we just have to watch that, watch the space and see kind of how that how that plays out. Um, a number of people have asked me whether you know this means people will even bother seeking an, an appeal, um, and or and, and mixed views on whether or not the fact that the court of appeal is clearly willing to consider these and hear these will there be a whole raft of them. And an interesting point that someone raised with me is actually if you're looking to appeal and you want to prevent the plan from being implemented, then you need some kind of, you know, stay or an injunction. And that's going to require the appealing um, creditor to put kind of funds on account to account for potential damages to the to the, the borrower in the event that, you know, their appeal is un unsuccessful. And I think that's going to be a real hurdle for, for people and perhaps, you know, why that wasn't done done here, but but who knows? Um, picking up on Mandip's point around the procedural piece and the timeline and and the liquidity runway, Charlotte, you mentioned that is really always a challenge for advisors um, and something that everyone is very conscious of. But these things, particularly in complex situations, take time. You have a whole raft of of stakeholders. Um, as an advisor, you know, ideally what you'd like to be doing is dual tracking, you know, your RP and getting that ready alongside your consensual discussions. So you're you're good to go with that if needed in sufficient time. But the reality is you've got very tight liquidity. Um, mm. Throwing a load more costs in is often, you know, going to be really challenging to manage. And these processes can be time consuming and management's bandwidth becomes a real issue trying to negotiate a consensual deal, devise a plan and get, get that ready together with the day job of running the business in probably what is a really challenging situation. It, that, that all po poses really practical issues of, of, of doing so. Um, so watch this space and see how that's managed, um, I'd, I'd say. 
Thanks, Joe. Uh, totally agree with your with your take homes there. Very useful guidance indeed. Uh, touching on practical effects of the decision, perhaps Mandeep, you could give us your final thoughts. Um, yeah, sure. And, and Joe sort of helpfully covered off, you know, a lot of them. So I think, you know, from a lawyer's perspective, I think the decision, you know, it, it's not groundbreaking insofar as the, some of the conclusions drawn. I hope the Court of Appeal judges aren't upset with me for saying that. But what it does is it, you know, helpfully draws together some of the principles. And we now have a decision of a higher court as to how the court should approach the issue of discretion, you know, how it's going to view um, the way that the shareholder position is dealt with. And so what that does do is give some, you know, perhaps greater certainty and guidance to the lower courts, but also mm. to those that are constructing the plan, right? Because really as advisors, we want to be constructing plans that are going to be successful. And so in a way, it kind of helps mitigate against risk of challenge because you've sort of dealt with some of the uncertainty that's been there before. Okay, thanks, uh, Mandeep. I think that's all we have time for today. Thanks to both of you, Mandeep and Joe, for the great conversation. Um, as a reminder to our listeners, uh, Reorg is a global provider of credit intelligence, data and analytics for law firms, investors and advisors. You can read more about Covenant Trends on the Reorg website, where a replay of this uh, podcast can also be found. If you're already a Reorg subscriber, please do send any further questions you may have to customer success at reorg.com. Thank you both. Thank you.